If you have a Bible, please turn it to the Gospel of John chapter 2. John chapter 2. If you're new to the Bible, that's fine. We're so glad that you're with us this morning. This is a safe place to learn how to read God's Word. And if you don't have a Bible or don't have an ESV, which is the version that we use, just grab your phone, type in John 2 ESV and follow along that way. We also have extra Bibles in the lobby. If you would like, you're welcome to go and grab one of those at any time. Follow along that way. All right. Second half of John chapter 2. Last week, if you were here, wedding at Cana in Galilee, Jesus was the life of the party. He was the life of the party. You would have wanted to invite Jesus from last week to come to your Super Bowl party. There are people who would have liked to invite him to be the life of the party. But this week, Jesus is about to wreck a party. (laughs) Life of the party, now he's wrecking a party. And I don't think I need to say more than that. Let's read it and you'll see what I mean. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. I'll read through the end of the chapter and then pray. John two thirteen. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this house, excuse me, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. The very words of God, would you join me in a brief prayer, and he would help us understand them this morning. Lord, we want to know this man, Jesus, truly. And I ask now that as we study this moment in his ministry, you would help to dispel any thoughts in our minds about him that are wrong. Show us the real Jesus, that we might believe in him, and follow him, and find life in him. Lord, save us from sin. Save us from ignorance. Send your spirit now to illuminate our hearts and minds. 
and help us to know this Jesus. We ask in his name, amen. All right, well, Jesus came out swinging, and so am I. Jesus came out swinging. Here's the reason why this passage seems so strange and difficult to make sense of for us. The reason this passage seems so strange is because we don't know Jesus. That's why it seems strange. We don't know who Jesus actually is. We think we do, right? When we've been taught a lot about him. And lots of people have opinions about who he is and why he's significant. But this passage challenges our understanding of Jesus. How does the Jesus of the second half of John chapter 2 fit into your understanding of him? You might like party Jesus from last week, but what about this Jesus? What about the Jesus who's cleansing the temple? I mean, he's not meek here. He's not mild. He's not some kind of ancient hippie, which I think is probably a way that a lot of people would describe him. He's not nice. You might say he's rude. He's pushy. He's accusatory and judgmental. He's physically violent. He doesn't share any sentimental platitudes about loving each other. He doesn't speak clearly. In fact, he confuses everybody, including his own disciples. So how is this Jesus supposed to help us understand the real Jesus? Because make no mistake, this is the real Jesus. This is the Jesus that the author John is attempting to persuade you and I to believe in. Why should we believe in a Jesus who acts and speaks like this? Well, like any good relationship, as we get new information, we have to let that shape what we understand about Jesus. You learn more about somebody, you know them better. We're learning more about Jesus, like in any good relationship. And look, Jesus doesn't need to change, okay? In fact, he's not going to change. We're the ones that have to change. Our understanding of him has to change. We've got to think new thoughts about him. We need our understanding of him to reflect reality, align with reality. And this passage is designed to help us do that. How? Let me walk you through it in just four points. Four ways our thinking will need to change if we're going to appreciate, adore, and trust in the real Jesus. I'll give you these four as we go. Point number one, Jesus is angrier than we think. Jesus is angrier than we think. After the wedding in Cana from last week, Jesus, his family members, and his disciples travel east from the wedding and resettle in Capernaum, which is noted in verse 12, the verse right before our passage. We don't know how much time passed between when they moved and when the wedding happened because John doesn't say, but in verse 13, the first verse of our passage, we find that shortly after they resettle, it's time for the Jewish festival of Passover. So Jesus traveled to Jerusalem, as most faithful Jews would, to celebrate this festival that commemorates when God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, with Passover having a focus on the night when God passed over the Jewish firstborn but slayed the firstborn Egyptians. That's what they're commemorating. And as he arrives, John immediately sets the stage for the conflict that we're about to encounter. Look at verse 14. It says, In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons 
and the money changers sitting there. It's just a descriptive sentence, right? So simple. And there's a good explanation for why this is happening. Since so many Jews had to travel to Jerusalem for the festival, at this point in Jewish history, they've been scattered all over the place. So they're traveling into Jerusalem for this festival, and it was easier on them to just purchase sacrificial animals when they arrived rather than having to take them on the long and probably dangerous and difficult journey. That's why there were animals for sale. And on top of this, because Jews lived in different places, they used different kinds of currency. And so money changers uh, would change their money into the local currency so that the faithful could pay the temple tax that was required of them. And of course, the money changers took a small fee to do so. And so that's why that exists. This is not, doesn't seem that scandalous on the surface. It's just opportunistic entrepreneurs, right? Just ancient Elon Musks just setting up shop to make a few bucks. No big deal, right? The problem wasn't that they were there. The problem wasn't that they were making money. The problem was where they set up shop. Inside the outer court of the temple. And again, it's worth noting, nobody seems to have a problem with this. Jewish, leaders, Jewish religious leaders aren't objecting to it. The priests in the temple don't appear to be objecting to it. The Jewish worshipers who were coming didn't complain about it. Nobody was upset about it, except for one guy. Verse 15. No introduction. Here's what he starts doing. Making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. The whip, of course, was a useful tool for hurting livestock. But if you notice, Jesus wasn't just hurting livestock. He was hurting people. It says he drove them all out of the temple with the whip. And he dumped the coins on the ground. What, what a scene. I mean, just imagine that you were there. You're in the outer court doing what you've always done. It's business as usual. And all of a sudden, some crazed Indiana Jones runs in and starts whipping everybody, swinging it at animals, driving. It would have been wild to be there, okay? Surprising, unexpected, alarming, shocking. That's what you would have felt. That's what everybody was feeling who observed what was going on. And John records that Jesus did all of this without explaining why. He starts acting without any explanation. He sees what's happening, springs into action. His first explanation for his actions doesn't come until after all of this has started. Verse 16, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. In some ways, the pigeon salesmen were the worst, okay? Pigeons were the sacrificial animal provided by God for the poorest Jews. The poor didn't actually even have to pay for a pigeon. They could just go catch one, and it was just as good as an oxen or a sheep or any other bigger sacrificial animal. These guys are attempting to turn a profit on the poorest of the poor who have come to worship God, and Jesus singles them out. He explains to them why they need to stop this immediately. It isn't because necessarily their business practices were corrupt or because they're overcharging. There's no evidence of that. It's because they've made God's house a place of business, and that's not what it is. The temple was the meeting place for God and his people. It was the seat of atonement where the sins of God's people were put away by sacrifice. It was the place where God enjoyed meals and fellowship with his people through the representative priests. That's what the temple was for. 
And these merchants could do business anywhere else. And if they had done business anywhere else, there wouldn't have been a problem. Why did they have to do it inside the temple? Jesus' position on that is that they should have known better. That's why he's willing to act the way that he is. He's angry about it. Jesus is angry about it. And again, it's not like he was surprised. (laughs) It's not like he walked in and was like, what's going on here? He, He knew what they were doing before he got there. I mean, if Jesus is who John has already declared him to be in his gospel account, then he already knew what was going on. He didn't become unhinged when he saw what was happening and lash out in some uncontrolled rage. Not at all. Jesus' response is perfectly measured. It's the right response. It's a controlled and restrained response. It's perfect. Jesus is angry, and he's right to be angry. So our portrait of Jesus needs to include his anger. Not because we need to learn how to be angry, okay? Some of you might be like, sweet, finally, I can be angry. It's not what this is about. Remember, John's purpose here is to convince us to believe in Jesus, not to provide us an example of how to be angry in a way that pleases God. Only God's anger is untainted by sin. And while there's good reasons for us to be angry, this passage isn't about that. This passage is designed to teach us to believe in the Jesus who is angry, the real Jesus. In a book called uh, Knowing Christ, uh, the author, Mark Jones, he makes this insightful observation about Jesus' emotions. Here's what he writes. The scriptures have much to say about the emotional life of Jesus. And that's what we're getting an insight into here. John's providing us an insight into the emotional life of Jesus. The scriptures have much to say about it. And for that reason alone, to know him is to know his emotions clearly displayed in the pages of the Old and New Testament. He's right. And one of those emotions is anger. Now, if Jesus' anger makes us uncomfortable, probably some of the reason is because most of what we see and encounter in others and in ourselves is unrighteous anger. Most of our experience is with unrighteous anger, selfish anger, self-seeking anger. I want people to give me what I want and I'm angry when they don't give it to me. Mere annoyance or shallow indignation. As the Apostle James puts it in James 1, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, and that's most of what you and I experience. But what we're seeing here is the righteous anger of God. It's righteous anger, a measured and decisive response to real evil. And here, the real evil is the commercialization of the worship of the living God. It's right for God to be angry about that. And the Jesus that we need to put our trust in is the Jesus who's righteously angry. We wouldn't want it to be any other way, right? You wouldn't want a Jesus who sees evil and is unaffected by it. You don't want a Savior like that. Jesus is good and he's angry. He's good and angry. And that's a good reason to believe in him. 
So why? Why is he angry? Point number two. Sin is worse than we think. Jesus is angrier than we think, and sin is worse than we think. Let's Let's dig further into Jesus' anger here. He's already explained that they've turned a place of worship into a place of business, but we get some additional insight into Christ's emotional life in verse 17. And here's actually an Old Testament passage that gives us some insight. Here it is, verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house will will consume me. Now, if this fits the pattern of every other time that Jesus' disciples remembered something in the Gospel of John, it was probably after the fact, okay? You're going to notice that over and over again in the book of John. The disciples do not remember things on the spot. They remember them later. That's probably what's happening here. They probably, this verse didn't pop into their heads while they're watching this whole scene unfold in front of them. They were probably just as shocked and confused as everybody else. But later on, They recall Psalm 69, verse 9, which is the verse quoted here, zeal for your house will consume me. John, the apostle who writes this letter, uh, this gospel, relishes, he relishes showing us how Jesus is the fulfillment of all kinds of Old Testament people and institutions and types and predictions. And in identifying Jesus here with Psalm chapter 69, he's alluding to Jesus being the true and better king David, right? This was a Psalm of David. David was Israel's favorite and most revered king. Jesus was his descendant and would exceed David in every way. David indulged in sin. David tolerated sin in Israel. And here, Jesus proves that he's not going to make the same mistake. His passion for God's house, his passion for God's glory, will show itself in a decisive action to purify it, to keep sin away from the presence of a holy God. What's happening here is Jesus sees sin getting closer to the Holy of Holies, and he drives it out. Jesus is passionate for the purity of God's house. That's what's behind his anger. Good good thing to be driving you. God's glory is at stake in this moment. God's glory is at stake, absolutely. God will never allow sin to conquer his people or his world. God will stamp sin out. And if he didn't do that, if he didn't take care of the threats to his rule and his righteousness, then he would be no God at all. So God's glory is at stake in putting an end to what's going on here. But something else is at stake too. Sin is dangerous for mankind. Sin puts us in danger of God's righteous anger. As, as we said already, God, God is right to be angry at real injustices. And, and when people rebel against him and mistreat one another and wreck God's world, horrible injustices have occurred and God cannot ignore them. Jesus understands that the impurity of God's people, which is represented here, puts them in danger of God's wrath. As the author of Hebrews wrote, Hebrews chapter 10, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, talking about God. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And then this chilling verse, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Jesus sees that these people could fall into the hands of the living God. 
And part of the reason we're shocked by his anger is because we've lost sight of that. We've lost sight of the sinfulness of sin. This isn't just a nice way to make a couple bucks. This is bringing, trying to bring sin close to God. It's dangerous. We've forgotten. This is why we're surprised by his anger. We have forgotten that God would be fully justified in pouring out his wrath on us. Jesus could do something much worse to these people than what he's done here. For all of our lies, for all of our lusts, our laziness, our licentiousness, our legalism, every sin storing up God's wrath for us. Sin is much worse than we think, much more dangerous than we think, and we will only understand Jesus's anger here to the degree that we understand the sinfulness and the consequences of sin. Whether we're guilty of big sins or small sins, shouldn't be surprised by Jesus's anger. Look, big sins and small sins share something in common. They're rebellion against God. They're a shaken fist at the God who made us. And whether we're guilty of big sins or small sins, God very well could be angry at us. In fact, he should be. Sin is much worse than we think. But that's not all. Point number three. God is gentler than we think. God is gentler than we think. Now, of course, what's sitting right on the surface of our passage is Jesus' anger. But again, that's not all that he is, and that's not all that's portrayed of him here. It would be a mistake to pass over the many tokens of God's gentleness in this passage. Let me show you first. The first thing to notice is that God allowed these practices to go unchecked and unchallenged for some period of time. This system of purchases and money changing was well established. This, this doesn't appear to be the first time that they're trying this out. Like this is a pilot program for, for how to sell animals to, uh, to pilgrim worshipers. God had allowed this for years without putting a stop to it. Been gentle and patient. Second, Jesus could have condemned them all on the spot. We sang it earlier that Jesus is the righteous judge. He could have condemned them all on the spot, and nobody could have objected. But instead, he merely corrects them. He doesn't condemn them. He just corrects them. Again, pretty surprising the way he does it. Not how I would recommend you do it with a whip. But we shouldn't miss that Jesus is offering everybody there the opportunity to amend their ways. As harsh as this looks, it's much gentler than it appears, as most discipline is. The third token of his gentleness that I've drawn out of here is that when questioned about why he's doing this, Jesus actually engages their question. He doesn't owe them an answer. He's God. <laughs> Come in and do whatever he wants. This is his house. But he engages them, engages their question. Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? A fair question. <laughs> if you're going to come in and push us around, 
gives you the right man. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, Jesus' answer is very confusing. But, but as students of the book of John, we're just going to have to get used to that, all right? Jesus is going to keep confusing people in the book of John. So just buckle up, because we're going to go through that again and again and again. He's going to say things that confuse people. So he says things that confuse people, us included. We're going to be confused. And we'll get to his answer in a moment, but before we do, pause and recognize that he engages them in dialogue. He seeks to answer their question in a fair way. They ask for a sign to justify his behavior. They don't immediately shout him down, which is interesting. They, they sh- shows they already had some inkling that Jesus was probably an important person, maybe even a prophet or something like that. They aren't hostile to Jesus at this point. They're, they are poking at his identity. Who are you? And what gives you the right to do this? And John, the apostle, is happy to keep drawing that question back up. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? He asks it over and over again. Here they ask it for him. Who are you and what gives you the right to do this? And Jesus gives them an answer, mercifully gives them an answer, a perplexing answer, sure, but a great answer, a great answer. Our fourth and final point, Jesus' answer. Here's point number four. Forgiveness is costlier than we think. If you're going to understand Jesus, the real Jesus, you've got to understand that forgiveness is costlier than we think. As I mentioned, Our author, John, is revealing Jesus' identity to us, layer by layer, peeling it back, showing us who the real Jesus really is. And just in this passage alone, John has already pointed to Jesus as the ultimate King David, but Jesus' answer to the question of verse 18 adds a whole other dimension. It confuses everybody, of course, but for the one who has ears to hear, and of course for the disciples later on in their lives, we're treated to another Old Testament image meant to help us make sense of Jesus' identity. Who is he? That's what we're learning here. Verse 19, again, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews respond, they say, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up? in three days. Now, Jesus may have tapped on his own chest when he said, this temple, and they didn't notice. We don't know. Obviously, they assume he's speaking about the temple they're all standing in, a temple that was an incredible ancient architectural project, 46 years to build, stone by stone, no dump trucks or cranes or other heavy machinery, mostly man, horse, and I think mule power. That's all they had available to them, and Jesus says he will rebuild it in three days, if destroyed. Of course, they're going, that's preposterous. We were, when we said sign, we meant, you know, like something cool, like heal somebody or something like that. But what are you talking about re-raising the temple if it gets destroyed? And this temple will never be destroyed. This is, this is like the icon of our country. What are you talking about? John tells us what he's talking about. (laughs) Even though, and this should make us chuckle, okay? John was there, And he didn't understand what Jesus was talking about either. He's one of the disciples who didn't figure it out until later. After the resurrection. John has the benefit of hindsight now. Verse 21. He includes this very helpful comment. (laughs) But he, Jesus, was speaking about the temple of his body. Aha! Thank you, John. 
When, therefore, Jesus was raised from the dead, verse 22, his disciples remembered that he had said this. John remembered that he had said this, and it nurtured their faith. They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Here it is. They ask for a sign, and Jesus preaches the gospel to them. And it sails right over their heads. He preaches the gospel to them. This is a statement of the gospel. How was Jesus ultimately going to cleanse the temple? He wasn't going to cleanse it with a whip. The true temple would have to be destroyed. And Jesus' human body is the true temple. His human body is where God is most present on earth. It's the meeting place of God and man. Heaven on earth in the body of God's only begotten son and that temple would have to be destroyed in order to forgive the sins of God's people to cleanse them and qualify them to remain in God's presence God would have to pour out his righteous anger on his perfect son instead of his sinful people and that was the plan all along that's why Jesus can say, destroy this temple. There's a prediction baked right into it. This is what's going to happen. You, the religious elite of, among the Jews, are going to destroy this temple. He's telling them that. They don't understand. He's predicting the future because he knows the future because he's God. <laughs> Jesus is more than just the building. He's the oxen, the sheep, the pigeon offered on the altar. He's the priest who mediates God's relationship with his people. And he's the building itself. He's the whole thing. The temple and everything in it was all preparation for the saving work of Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus wants you and I to know. That's what the Apostle John wants you and I to know. He doesn't want us to be confused about it for as long as he was. He wants us to see that Jesus is going to be destroyed so that we could be made alive. He's going to be condemned so that we can go free. And all of that, that Jesus is angrier than we think, sin is worse than we think, God is gentler than we think, and forgiveness is costlier than we think, all of that leads us to conclude that Jesus is greater than we think. Our thoughts about him have been too small. And moment by moment, passage by passage, sermon by sermon, he's expanding our understanding of just how great he is. Jesus is greater than we think. That's the point of this passage. Sure, he's angrier than we think because sin is worse than we realize, but he's also gentler and more forgiving than we've yet come to understand. And today he wants us to see him a little bit more clearly. Because only the real Jesus can save us from the penalty we deserve on, the count, on account of our sins. Jesus doesn't want you to perish for your sins. He wants to save you. That's the offer of this passage. That's the offer every time the gospel is spoken or sung. Trust in the real Jesus and be saved from the punishment that you deserve. He's offering that here because you will come to know a Savior who is better than you can imagine.
at the very end of our passage, in what seemed like a strange addition, John profiles for us some believers who responded to this, but their faith was rather shallow. People who were given a sign like the one the Jewish leaders were asking for. The sign doesn't do much for them. Verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew and what was in man. Kind of strange end to this passage, but helpful if you know what John's trying to do. John doesn't want us to be like these believers. Look, Jesus did more miracles, and we're going to see more of them in the gospel. Jesus did more miracles, and here people love the miracles, they love the signs. But they didn't love him. They loved what he could do for them. They didn't love him for what he had come to do for them. They didn't know him truly. And so Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. He didn't disclose who he was to them. That's the idea. He reserved that for his closest followers. But now he's making himself known to you. He is, by exposing you to the Gospel of John. <laughs> He's entrusting his true self to you. That means you can know the Jesus who's real. You can know him as he is, both angry at our sin and yet laying down his life to save us from it. And I'd want to gently encourage you myself as well, to beware of false or sentimental views of Jesus. It is very easy to think that we've got him, that we understand him. That would be a, a terrible mistake. To know Jesus is to grow in knowing him, to seek him, to pursue him, to know him better. And that's the office, that's the offer, to embrace Jesus with the many amazing facets that make him who he is. The, the Puritan Jonathan Edwards described Jesus as having an, and this is going to make your head spin a little bit, he described Jesus as having an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies, okay? An admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. That's how, that's how they talked in the 1700s, sorry. <laughs> Just reporting. My paraphrase, okay. Jesus is incredible in many different ways. That's what Edwards is saying. Jesus is incredible in many different ways. So let me read to you what Edwards said in a sermon on this topic. He said, there is an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is incredible in many different ways. The lion and the lamb, though very diverse kinds of creatures, yet each have their peculiar excellencies. The lion excels in strength and in the majesty of his appearance and voice. The lamb 
excels in meekness and, and patience and being suitable to be offered in sacrifice to God. But we see that Christ is compared to both because the diverse excellencies of both wonderfully meet in him. Now that's what you're seeing here in Jesus, in John 2. Many wonderful qualities meeting in one man. This is the real Jesus. Know that Jesus. Seek to know that Jesus. Love that Jesus and seek to love him more. Trust in that Jesus and trust him more. Follow that Jesus and follow him to the end. And worship that Jesus, the real one, the one who is unmatched in power and wrath and mercy and goodness and grace. For only the real Jesus can save us from sin and bring us back to God and give us a life that will never end, which is what he's offering for you to do, to do for you today. So let me pray. And we'll worship him by singing once again. Lord, thank you for entrusting yourself to us. Oh, what a humbling thought that you have entrusted us with the truth about your precious son. Oh Lord, I pray. I pray that we would that we would not be distracted by the offer of many false Jesuses. That we wouldn't be distracted by our own changing fickle thoughts about Jesus and who he is. I pray, Lord, that by your spirit you would show us the real Jesus so that we might be amazed by him, so that we might be humbled by him, and so, so that so that we might put all of our trust in him like we've sung this morning. Show us the real Jesus that we may worship and enjoy him today and for endless days. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.